Welcome to Still Scared Talking Children's Horror, a podcast about creepy, spooky and disturbing children's books, films and TV. I'm Ren Wednesday, my co-host is Adam Wybray, we're joined again by Ava Foxfort, and we're discussing uh, the first part of The Final Reckoning by Robin Jarvis. A full transcript of this episode will be available, so check the show notes for that. Enjoy! Good evening, Adam. Hello. Good evening, Ava. I've got a burp coming. Oh dear. Oh, there, there we go. I did it. I wasn't going to burp into the microphone. <laughs> oh. Hello. <laughs> Welcome to Still Burping. <laughs> um, and how are you two this five to eight on a Thursday evening? Uh, clammy, <laughs> clammy. If I'm honest, um, mm. yeah, I think I've progressed past sweaty into clammy. Oh, mm. mm. oh, that's a, yeah. it's an unpleasant transition. That one, <laughs> it is. It, yeah, um, no, it, it's um, it's very close here. I'm in the um, well, the computer room at my parents' house. Um, and it's a very small room. Yeah, can you remember it? Because it, yeah, it, it, you have to go through my parents' bedroom to get into it. So, like our house is quite folded in on itself. So you have to go through my parents' bedroom and then on a little walkway, which you have to kind of <laughs> duck down into uh, across the stairs into this room. Yeah, that's yeah. that's. Well, your house has just got a lot more elaborate than I imagined it was. <laughs> but it's not like super big. I say it's very kind of compact. It's very compact, but, it's, but it folds in on itself a couple of yeah, times. Yeah, it's quite and, dense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm into it. Yeah, it's I'm like it. a, a kind of more cottagey version of uh, the house in um, House of Stairs. Is uh. that... I mean, that wasn't a house. It was just stairs. Yeah, no, that was just no. Um, I mean, the what? What's that horror book about? The the end oh, of stairs. Oh, nightmare so, stairs. No, not not, not <laughs> nightmare stairs. Hardly had stairs in it at all. Plenty <laughs> <laughs> of nightmares, not enough stairs. Exactly. Um, no, not not a kids horror. Like adult horror, and it's all like pretentious and pieced together from different documents and um. And like it's about an evil film that people watch, and then they go into like the walls of the house, and it's got endless labyrinthine stairs. Oh, oh, I don't, I don't know about that. Well, okay, listeners, if you know what I'm on about, <laughs> please send your answers on a postcard direct. Yeah, or, or tweet us. That, that'd be good. Also, <laughs> um, well, Adam's clammy in some sort of. A labyrinth in Warren. Yeah. Um, 
<laughs> that feels more appropriate Which... to this book than me, who's just tired. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Bit of a weary evening for Ava. Um, but that doesn't mean I'm not ready to talk about a load of uh, mice dying. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That was the spirit. <laughs> mouse death. Um, so we've come to... I'm now imagining mouse death is a, uh, like, yeah, one of the one of the New York mice. Um, it's a good rap name, mouse death. <laughs> Sorry. I said I was tired. I said I was tired. <laughs> You're going to get half hearted puns. <laughs> Spell M-A-U-S, like M-A-U-S, John Mouse. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, we've come to the third book in the Deptford Mice series, The Final Reckoning, written and illustrated by Robin Jarvis uh, from 1990. Um, and because uh, despite this book being less than 300 pages long, uh, it's sufficiently epic that we're going to go full Hollywood film trilogy on it and um, split our our last discussion into two parts. Uh, yeah, so. you, can, you can think of this as the Hobbit of podcasts and just as good. <laughs> yeah. So, like, this episode is the one where we metaphorically do shit camping and next one will be the one where we metaphorically ride on a dragon. <laughs> Well, um, I'm glad I've got something to look forward to. <laughs> um, I will say, I've just accidentally flicked to the back of the book and it's got one of those uh, order forms where you can send money to Simon and Chester Cash Sales Department. And the final book does cost 49p more than the first two books, if you wanted to order it. Though why you'd want to order it when you've already got it in your hands, I'm not entirely sure. Well, I do I do own it in book form. I bought it second-hand and my copy's got spots of blood on it <laughs> human or um or, or mouse, or mouse. Um, I, I assume so the book's actually been used as a mouse trap somewhere down the line okay. yeah or, or maybe it's the uh, original copy and jarvis wrote the whole thing in the blood of mice as his ink um <laughs> it would explain a lot i'm, I'm, I'm not I'm, I, I think i would just about put it past him but <laughs> no, I, I imagine actually that some young child reading it had a bleeding nose or something yeah. and kind of snot-blooded in shock, snot, snot in shock uh, over over their book, um, then donated in adulthood in shame uh, to a charity <laughs> shop where I unwillingly purchased it from. That, that's really quite unpleasant. <laughs> <laughs> Start as we mean to go on. <laughs> um, so... um. Yeah, th- this is our third, our third of fourth episodes, and uh, a lot has happened. Um, so, oh yeah, don't start here, go. You got to listen to the other two. Yeah, um, but uh, as as a quick refresher, um, Jupiter the cat uh, died in his his cat mortal form. Um, was burned on a bonfire. His spirit went up into the sky. He then got stuck in a crystal ball, um, taken to the countryside, the crystal ball smashed. He's gone back up into the sky. Um, 
thinking about it, it's actually quite hard. Like the crystal ball was a marble, and it is quite hard to actually actually crack open a marble. I guess if it's got a, a horrendous ah, cat I, spirit in it. Yeah, I thought you were going to say it's quite hard to stuff a cat inside a marble. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> um. So now uh, we're we're back in the city. We're back in uh, in Deptford. And uh, Jupiter is at large again, but larger. Yeah, at large in the sky, which is very large. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously, like, if you're listening, if you go out, go to your window, look out at the sky now. Um, I mean, if it's dark, you won't be able to tell, but the sky is properly large. Yeah, but you're in uh, you're in East Anglia, aren't you? And I was just visiting there fairly recently, and like the sky is definitely a lot larger there than it is up in this valley. Yeah, in in many ways, we're the Texas of England. The Texas of England. Um, but yeah, <laughs> in, in, at least in terms of our regressive ideas. So, 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 sorry, Texans. I was um, definitely terrified by how much sky there was <laughs> in North Norfolk. God, now I want to sh- shoot a western, <laughs> like, you know, in Suffolk. <laughs> oh, like, um, I could do, like, um, that Wim Vendors film, Paris, Texas. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, 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 have, I have someone with a very weather-beaten face in the fields, walking through the cabbage fields. It's funny, I was talking to my students about um, about the road movie and, you know, why it's a quintessentially American genre and you don't really get many British road movies. And I think it's just that, like, it wouldn't take very long in Britain. <laughs> um, and there'd be too many, like, I don't know, little chefs and stuff. <laughs> like, like most, most of my service stations are definitely not as, like, dramatic and eerie. Mm, yeah. They're not very liminal, are they? Yeah. Chefs <laughs> like e- eating a Scotch egg, like <laughs> wistfully, you know, <laughs> in black and white. No, yeah, yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit land partridge, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, but then, which came first? It is a bit chicken and egg, you know, <laughs> eating a Scotch egg wistfully or Alan partridge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, <laughs> right, right. We're getting, we're getting right. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, this is why it needs to be two <laughs> two episodes. <laughs> it's, it's not that we need built-in faff time. It's not that yeah. there's a lot happening in the book. It's that we've got a lot of reckons about Scotch eggs. <laughs> um, okay, so so. In, Actually, uh, the there, there is a, I will say before we move on from the scotch <laughs> eggs that I did notice that there's one of those mini corn scotch eggs um, at the back, at the back of the fridge, and I just don't know how old it is and whether I'm going to eat it or not. I've, I've been, I've been musing on it. <laughs> well, if you're going to eat it, I would say you have to eat it before the next episode so that you can report back. Okay, if we can have a scotch egg report at the beginning of uh, the final reckoning part two. Hmm. Okay, yeah, that sounds good. That could be that could be um, an additional segment, you know, um, <laughs> you know, like texture of the week, or claim of the week, Scotch egg report of the week. Might be hard to do a good jingle for it though. 
<laughs> sorry, sorry, Red. I know you've got a lot of plot to get through. I <laughs> I'm, I'm neck deep in plot, and you're just waffling on about Scotch eggs. So, um, <laughs> okay, so we have this quite uh, cinematic cold open to this book here with the peddler Kemp, who who had a minor role in the previous book, bringing Audrey and Madame Akikuyu and Co to Fennyworld. But I didn't think we, I don't think we saw it was worth mentioning him. But he was a bit bawdy, bit of a. Uh, a, a rambunctious type. Yeah, a bit, um, a bit of a minor non-playable character in Skyrim or D&D, basically. Uh-huh. Um, so it's it's the end of autumn and he's in high spirits, kind of pleasantly drunk, wandering with his uh, travelling wares and awaiting the trade fair. He finds one of Audrey's silver tail bells nestled in the crevice of a wall and decides he'll return it to her on his way through Deptford. But even as he's holding this small bell in his paw, an icy wind and fog swirls around him. He's uh, gripped with horror and uh, fumbles for the opening in the wall, but he can't get away from this immense, rumbling, purring shadow that engulfs him. And the last thing he sees is a flash of blue light and a spear of ice. And uh, it says... The terrible ice spear had pierced his body and the blood which trickled out froze quickly. The shadow in the fog purred to itself and somewhere in that blanketing greyness the sound of a small sweet bell tinkled softly. So, it's, it's a bit alarming. It, uh, yeah, it's sad and poetic, but I will get out of the way now to mention that for some reason... Whenever spears of ice, and there's quite a few spears of ice, deadly spears of ice in this book. Um, mm. But I kept thinking there's a bit in the day to day where someone is speared with a, uh, a frozen jet of urine. Mm. Yeah, I had from, from an airplane. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, I think yeah. It, I think it's an, an, an urban myth of of some report. I think I've seen it in other circumstances as well. Uh. But I definitely. Every time there's an ice bed, there's a bit of me saying, is it just piss from an airplane? Yeah. <laughs> Which does un- undermine the dread of... Uh... And it's a shame, I'm... because that, like, the, the purring fog is so vivid. And, mm, yeah. yeah, it's a really, really strong image. But I'm uh, thankful and quite quite surprised that it's not just me. That's... <laughs> <laughs> so thanks, Ava. <laughs> That's all right. I, um, yeah, I wasn't going to mention it. Uh, there you go. There you go. You brought it out of me. Scotched um, egg and icy piss. <laughs> a good night out. <laughs> um, and it, yeah, after this, uh, it also it does the kind of full on does the like oh uh, he's like camp arguing with himself about whether he's going to settle down with uh, the uh, I can't remember her name but the, the the woman who he kind of has a thing with potentially and we're Millie just thinking Coopwick. of Millie Coopwick. <laughs> How could you forget Lily Poopwick? <laughs> Millie Poopwick. Millie Poopwick. Yeah. Um, and so it does, you know, it's the classic, like, oh no, he's planning on settling down after a long, hard yeah. life. He's got one day left till retirement. <laughs> I think we know what's going to happen here, don't we? This is a prologue. Someone's going to die. 
Yeah. Um, and he did. And it was terrifying. It's a really dark start. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and uh, yes, definitely sets the tone of extreme unease as we return to Deptford, where the mice are getting cosy in preparation for Yule. Uh, with spiced fruit buns and Thomas Triton spooky ghost stories, uh, which were quite enjoyable. <laughs> um, yeah. of, uh, definitely of the kind that you would you would tell. I, I don't know. I feel like there's a whole genre of ghost stories where it's like, but then whose hand were you holding? <laughs> <laughs> cool. Uh, Arthur... Arthur, Audrey's brother, uh, persuades Oswald to meet him at night to raid the larder. But when they get there, they find it bare. They rush out to tell the other mice that there's no food for the winter, but everyone's already out in their beds and looking up at the sky, where all the bats in Deptford are flying out of their various attics and rafters in a great chittering cloud, um, which uh, seems fairly ominous, as signs go. Um, and uh, Oswald declares that it's a bad omen and uh, they're all going to die. Optimistic one, that Oswald. <laughs> yeah. Um. I mean, to be fair, like all the with the bat status as oracles in this role, it is pretty ominous. <laughs> um, <laughs> um. Uh, although I think I would probably be looking out the window, going, "Oh, cool." Um, if I saw that many bats. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Um, but um, Well, some of them are. Some of the mice were saying things like, Ooh, isn't it marvellous? I've never heard of this happening before, have you? Whilst others grumbled sourly. Tis the first sign of doom. Mark my words. <laughs> um, and on this note, we get to catch up with Piccadilly. Our, our favourite city mouse, who we haven't seen since he and Audrey failed to communicate their affection for each other at the beginning of the Crystal Prison. Uh, Piccadilly's found his way back to the city, to the cooperative mouse commune of Holborn. It's a strong pun, can I just say? It's a strong London pun. <laughs> this is Hole, H-O-L-E, um, which is uh, quite enjoyable. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's described as uh, one of the most perfect mouse societies to have existed in the whole country. Everyone enjoyed their work and nobody thought themselves superior to anyone else. Even the great Thane was known to all as Henry, despite his noble lineage. Not sure if the Holborners are more progressive on the gender front than the, than the Deptford mice. Um, where, I mean, despite Gwen Brown's occasional sword-wielding, Mm, it is, is fairly mouse wives making jam and mouse husbands. But uh, we don't actually see many of the mouse husbands, to be fair. Like No, no, we don't. There's a, there's a couple of like older senior mice within the community, but like we really don't know what they're what they're yeah. they're doing, what their day jobs are. I guess being eaten by Jupiter. Yeah, well, <laughs> Presumably, <laughs> I mean, Good we to have know. a hobby. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, presumably they're just occasionally getting lured into the uh, into the basement and the uh, the grill. 
Um, uh, mm. I mean, yeah, maybe, maybe there is a, a, a lack of adult male mice. Um, don't know. <laughs> uh, Piccadilly is supervising a food gathering party. Um, when he spots a feeble and peevish old rat called Barker spying on them. Piccadilly bribes him with food and asks him why he's so hungry, as there's usually plenty of scraps and odds and ends for rats to gobble, like fluffy bits of nougat and things. Um, which is a texture. That's a, certainly a texture. Um, Barker lets slip something about the new blood in the rats and uh, their leader, Old Stumpy. Um, at which point, I imagine any reader who remembers the Dark Portal goes, oh no, as we remember Uh-oh. Jupiter's hench rat, the piebald Cornish rat with the stump of his tail wrapped in a rag, Morgan. Oh, I wish I'd remind. I was just like, who's this new rat? (laughs) 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 Yeah, I I don't know. I, I, yeah, I was wondering what, if that, if that clicked for you, for you two. I, I, it made me think of it immediately. And I'm normally very bad at uh, (laughs) at spotting things that are going to come up in a, in a story. (laughs) I feel like I, did but i don't know if that's because it's mentioned in the um i know it's not at all is it yeah i don't know i don't know whether it did click actually i Mm. cannot remember um well i enjoyed the wonderful surprise (laughs) (laughs) good good Mm. um i think piccadilly has his suspicions about who old stumpy is but it doesn't doesn't go into it at this point um but uh, he tries to, to press Barker for more information. Um, but uh, at that moment, two alarming characters turn up. Rats called Smith and Kelly. Uh, although Piccadilly calls them many things, including stinky, pongo, lardy, and bog features. Um, but, but I don't know if you notice this, but in return... All they call him is uh, Grey Boots, Freckle Face and Pretty Boy, which, which aren't insults. <laughs> um, Grey Boots is just like quite a strong nickname in general. Like, yeah. Uh, so it's a bit like, like in Peep Show when the kids call Mark Clean Shirt. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, which I think despite being horrible bloodthirsty rats they maybe need to do some work on their on their insults i mean is it more of that kind of like their what their society is based enough on like unsettlingness that to be to be a pretty boy is pretty uh negatively seen oh okay Um, that was my that was my kind of take on it like they're oh okay yeah Yeah. they wouldn't value someone's prettiness very highly. Yeah, I might be letting my own feelings about <laughs> how I would like to be called a pretty boy. <laughs> oh, by, by, by talking rats. <laughs> um, 
um, yeah, they, they they taunt each other a bit, and uh, Smith and Kelly are itching to give Piccadilly a good smacking, but they have to hold off because of orders from above. Um, Piccadilly's pretty pretty alarmed by this, and uh, hightails it back to Holborn to warn them that the rats are getting organised, and um, Smith and Kelly threaten Barker for telling Piccadilly too much. Um, back at Holborn, Piccadilly passes anxiously through the the ancient front door with its uh, single, fairly casual sentry, and um, goes into the big hall to join the rest of the mice in an important meeting. Um, a mouse called Charlie Coppet comes before the crowd with a bloody face and a black eye and tells them how while he was out foraging, a rat started eating, eating food from one of their sacks and when Charlie told him to knock it off, the, the rat hit him across the face. Um, which is um, uh, which is not what how they're accustomed to the rats behaving. They're more of the... Um, snivelling and uh, slime-licking kind of rats that we've heard about um, before Jupiter got to them. Uh, the Thane uh, and the ministers discuss what they should do about the rats' increasing boldness, and um, Piccadilly pipes up with suggestions that they they start working on a, a reinforced front door and digging a back exit so that the rats don't know about and and spying on the rats to find out their plans. The, the Thane is impressed with his tactical mind and uh, names him the Minister for War. Yeah, like Piccadilly almost risked a claim of the week, but actually all his claim making worked out pretty good. Like, yeah, okay, you're Minister. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in the... Um, in the society of Holborn, even a a small, cheeky claim maker can can be appointed minister. Um, yeah. And Piccadilly volunteers to be the one to spy on the rats, and his uh, young friend from the foraging party, uh, called Marty, uh, volunteers to go with him. Um. It does feel a bit. It does. It does seem a bit. I don't know. I feel like the great thing is. I think. Like, I feel like they I, just announcing the minister of war as being the person who. Oh, they're a bit. They're a bit worried about this stuff. I may as well just give them a title. <laughs> um, and then immediately as becoming minister, just like oh well, I'm going to leave. <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't feel like the strongest like defensive setup. Yeah. Oh, like you have lots of plans about how to defend our home. Um, yeah, just just go off and. Uh... <laughs> I mean, it is right. The important thing is to gather that intelligence, but yeah. I feel like he should be overseeing the defences as well. And maybe things would have worked out better if he had. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. I'm not, uh, I'm not. I don't mean that. I'm not blaming for Piccadilly. <laughs> Poor Piccadilly. Um, yeah, we're, we're trying not to talk about things that turn up in the second half of the book. But uh, Basically, Piccadilly will suffer enough. 
<laughs> yeah, definitely doesn't need me like backseat ministering at Minister of Warring. Um, um, speaking of suffering, um, we get a, a sad scene of Smith and Kelly tormenting uh, poor hungry Barker, tricking him into giving them a chocolate bar he's just found in exchange for a, for a stone they've wrapped up like a fish cake. Um, which I did say, think was quite an evocative texture. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, in a way, I understand because I love chocolate, but, you know, a stone that's like a fish cake. That sounds pretty cool. <laughs> if he, you know, if he were more entrepreneurial and pulled himself up by his bootstraps, he could have like made a song and dance out of that, you know. Say, so, oh, you know, one hunk of meat or stringy bit of bacon for a look at my astonishing stone that looks like a fish cake. <laughs> I'm not sure the stone looks like a fish cake. Well, it's, it's just, just wrapped up in a in a fishy wrapper. It smells faintly of vinegar. Yeah, well, you need to use your imagination. <laughs> <laughs> I guess they don't have much entertainment, don't they? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my, my business venture clearly isn't going to work. <laughs> oh, I, better, I better scrap that Kickstarter. <laughs> Fish cake or stone? <laughs> um... Shall we do texture of we? Because I'm getting a bit tired of the sound of my own voice. Yeah, and, and and fish cake or stone isn't like a kind of thing we do on this podcast. We do texture. <laughs> <laughs> it's time for it's texture of the week. Right. Um, All right. Right. I'll put the book down so I can do mm. both hands. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. <laughs> you got to sing of the week. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. Texture, isn't it? Yeah, texture. Yeah. All right. Um. Someone else, please, please talk about your texture. Oh, my texture is everything to do with the bass. Everything. Everything. Every, well, I mean, it kind of is everything, but everything to do with the bats. Like, the entire chapter about the bats is so full of wonderful textures, and I mm-hmm. loved it. Um, and if you're forcing me to get specific, I wanted to pick a, uh, a social texture. <laughs> <laughs> oh! This is outrageous! <laughs> <laughs> you might have to give me a moment to actually find it, um, but it was wonderful. Yeah, there's just a couple of things. There's quite a few things in in the the bat chapter that is is kind of incredible. Like there's someone dribbling in his ear, and there's um, is this it? Oswald was terribly nervous. Here he was at the most important meeting ever held to discuss the worst foe the world had ever known with the greatest number of bats anyone had ever seen. He felt extremely small and alone. What use would he be? Just so I recognise that that's not really a texture, 
But Not in the conventional it's, sense. It's a very, very vivid description of a certain kind of, of uh, social anxiety. Um, and <laughs> it gave me a shiver that felt like mm. that was a strong texture. So I'm, I'm pitching that as a social texture. I love it. <laughs> You're hired. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I'm not my game. <laughs> Um, yeah, just everything. There's just so many little details that that, that stand out in the um, in the bats chapter that we'll come to soon. They circled the huge dome three times and called to the thousands of other bats in their own language. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Mm. Mm-hmm. Bats, just big clouds of bats, is the best texture I can imagine. Um, oh, did you see mm. that? Did you see that? Like meme the video with the the baby bat eating all the banana. No, it's all chubby cheeks. It's, it's like the marshmallow challenge. It just can't get enough of the banana. No, so <laughs> you must send me this meme. Oh yeah, yeah, it's very good. <laughs> Show me the bats, Adam. Show me the bats with the bananas. With their fondness of bananas. I'll see if I can find it. But um, while I'm doing that, I could. Uh, read read my my texture i've gone with another kind of um quite nice texture hmm so so i'm really can't can't oh yeah here, here, i think I, oh, I found i found the video it's got loads of upload there's about uh, here we go I'll, I'll send i'll send this you can you can that's not a texture adam it's a meme <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Thomas Triton stirred in his sleep and dreamed deeply. Silver-armoured fish flashed over his bed and splashed into the wooden wall whilst his forehead rippled and rolled. Green waving weeds spilled over the blankets and salty bubbles blew up through the pillows. Seagulls cried down to him as he drifted through the night on his raft of bedclothes. They wheeled and circled high above, their voices becoming faint and mournful. Yeah. Mm, yeah, that that whole That was so that was also my texture. Chippy <laughs> dream sequence is uh, is wonderful. Like the sirens of old, the haunting faces lured the sleeping Thomas to them. The sea tilted, swelling and churning as the rain battered down from the ceiling sky. Amid the wood grain clouds, another face loomed over them, a squint-eyed evil phantom riding on a serpent's scaly back and laughing with the tempest's fury. Ooh. Like they're just the submerging between it really captures that yeah. liminal state of consciousness that's merging between um sort of different objects and layers of reality and wakefulness and sleep. Um yeah, really love that piece of writing. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really lovely. Um yeah, that that was also the one I chose, but um I did I did get a black uh, a backup, um which was just I think pretty much the first, well, the, the the first line, the first line of the book. Um, the hedgerows were spotted with berries red as blood and black ragged winged crows flapped over the empty fields, shrieking in ugly voices. <laughs> just uh, just in terms of scene setting, that's uh, pretty, uh, pretty solid. <laughs> <laughs> Things are going to get goth. <laughs> uh, um, 
Talking about bats, have you have you watched the the fruit bat stuffing its face with banana? Oh, well, I mean, no, because we're recording a podcast. But I mean, <laughs> if you insist, are we are we taking a, are we taking a break to watch the uh, bat with a banana? No, no, this is this is what they they do on the podcast. I've been listening, like Evolution of Horror. Like they're always like, oh yeah, let's just watch the trailers or something. Oh no, now I'm playing an advert at you. Well, no, not the, no, just the bat because it's no, like but the advert came before the bat. I can't. It's like, it's like, rea- it. it's like a reaction video because people like watching other people. Yeah, but they're watching. watching they're listening to me react to an advert for Uber. <laughs> I'm watching the bat. Oh. Yeah, mine loves that banana. Oh. You see, yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, what a good face. Oh my god, it loves that banana so much. Oh, you could imagine that thing dribbling in your ear and it being really intimidating, but well, 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 I've got a banana. (laughs) See, see, quality podcasting. Just to be clear, my reaction there is definitely to the bat eating a banana and not to Uber, who I think are rubbish. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And not cute. And not cute. I hope you didn't get that big sponsorship deal with Uber for the podcast. Not uh, now. <laughs> <laughs> but we do have a sponsorship deal from Baby Bats. So. <laughs> oh. yeah. Good. So, um, so Piccadilly and Marty hear Barker's howl of despair as he discovers that this fish cake is in fact a stone um and uh, piccadilly tries to get more information out of barker um but he didn't bring any food to bribe him so barker's not playing um piccadilly tries to threaten the information out of him but barker gets extremely agitated and says he has a meeting to go to and can't be late and arrives out of piccadilly's grasp uh, so, naturally, Piccadilly decides that they have to crash this meeting as this is their big chance to find out who old Stumpy is and what he's up to. Um, so, they they find... Um, they follow they follow Barker and find a, a huge gathering of rats packed all filthily and stinkingly together in a chamber. Um, they they manage to, to crawl up a pipe... So they have a, a view over the whole rat tapestry uh, without being too visible to the crowd. Um, and this is where we find that it is indeed Morgan who is trading on his reputation as being a vicious rat from Deptford and uh, whipping the city rats up into a frenzy of hate and bloodlust. Yeah, he's, Morgan's become a popularist, basically. Mm. Um, it's... Yeah, it really kind of plays out like a rally. Yeah. Um, can I can I re- read some of it? Because oh I, yeah, please do. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> see if I can remember my my Morgan voice from before. <laughs> You'd be here because of blood! He screamed. You have none. Where be the hot burning blood of the ravenous rat? It don't run in your veins. I should know. I come from Jetford. The crowd murmured admiringly. Everyone had heard of the rats of Deptford and how vicious they were. When I come here, Morgan continued, I couldn't believe me eyes. 
There you were, you miserable vermin, fawning and scraping, afraid of mice and your own shadows. It made me honker so disgusted. He pointed to Smith and Kelly and a few other fierce-looking brutes. See what can be done if you forget your lily-livered ways and follow me. Turn to the path of tooth and claw. Let blood flow in the underground. He's a a nasty piece of work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, One older rat objects to the idea of rats as murderers and uh, Morgan slits his throat with his claws right there on stage. Uh, the, the rats chant for war and blood and death to all mice um, and Piccadilly and Marty realise that they have to warn Holborn really quickly. Um, but as they're, they're trying to leave, Marty's foot slips on some rubble and the rats suddenly notice their hiding place. Piccadilly tells Marty to run and warn Holborn, but tells him to take the east way that the rats aren't watching. Piccadilly taunts and tries to distract the rats and has them all running after him, but just as he's about to get away, he twists his ankle, falls and rolls unconscious beneath the train track. Um, With an alarming fatality, right? Like, is this the end of Piccadilly? Yes, I mean, and everything after is his dying dream. Oh. <laughs> um, I was really worried at this point that um, uh, Marty was going to end up leading them into the new back entrance uh, East Way, and the, that was going to be how the rats would get to uh, into Holborn. Mm. Um, whether whether Piccadilly survived or not, I thought that yeah, potentially mm. he'd uh, he'd doomed them by giving them a secret back route in. Um, but we shall see how that plays out next episode. Yeah, I mean, all, all the established rules of narrative would suggest that a main character wouldn't be dispatched so easily, uh, but this is Robin Jarvis we're talking about, <laughs> and. It kind of it makes a certain kind of grim sense for Piccadilly to die being chased by rats, yeah. as that's where Albert Brown uh, met his end in the first book. Well, Piccadilly got away, um, but yeah. Well, it's also continued. it's one of the benefits of the like strong ensemble cast as well is that like he's mm. managed to establish that people aren't safe just because they are like one mm. of the one of the key members like. Uh, it seems odd for him to go there when he's got such unresolved business with um, with Audrey, but at the same time, yeah. the people have definitely died with unresolved business. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, Once again, better than Game of Thrones. Better than Game of Thrones. <laughs> um, so it, it's it's now uh, we're, while we're wondering if um, if uh, Piccadilly has has bought it that. Um, we return to Salty Seamouse Thomas Triton and his uneasy sleep on the Cutty Sark. Um, just uh, when he's about to fall back to sleep, he's rudely awoken by a squirrel throwing stones at the ship's hull. Um, the squirrel's greatly distressed and tells him that he's been sent for by the Star Wife because there's been murder in the park. Hey. Yeah, there's there's chaos at the observatory, and when 
Thomas Triton gets there and he finds the squirrels mourning 23 of their number who have all been killed by a spear of ice between the ribs and are laid out on the grass, frozen solid. The starwife tells Triton that in the night a, a piercing cold was followed by a great dark cloud, sparking purple lightning and then a rolling thick fog. And through the fog she made out the shape of an enormous cat, tall as a tree, and through its vast shape I could see the stars. Uh, the starwife tells Triton that uh, the spirit of Jupiter now has her star glass, which is uh, an object of great mystical power. Uh, did we hear about the star glass last last book? Um, uh, it, yeah, it appears in the uh, uh, in the second one. It's say it's what uh, the star wife used to collect the juice, the milk of the stars, uh, to save uh, Oswald from his, uh, mm-hmm. his horrendous okay, illness. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so it's part of. Presumably, I've I've kind of assumed that it's some kind of bit of apparatus from Greenwich Observatory. Like whether um, whether it's a, a real thing or just like a random discarded lens of telescope or something. Can can it um, really milk the stars? Can it? Can he milk the stars? <laughs> uh, one can only assume. I don't think that there's any reason why Robin Jarvis mm. would lie to us. And would it be vegan? Are they are they farmed stars at that point? Mm. No, it sounds it sounds like a glamorous job though, doesn't it? Milker of the stars. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also really like at this point where I think I think it's around here that we have the first mention but if it's not uh, like I love that Jupiter is being described as the unbeast um, <laughs> unbeast yeah, it's, very, very me- it's very metal isn't it yeah the unbeast or unbeast it's not it's not the unbeast um, oh is it this you know what this might have got caught by your weird OCR but in here it's unbeast un- it's double E yeah, yeah. Um, in the original text, so I don't know if that's. Oh yeah, changed. no, no, no. I have, I have the book, but I was just, just yeah, yeah pronouncing it's it beast. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, it works either way, doesn't it? But I kind yeah. of like it as unbeast, like the the thing, yeah, the yeah. thing that isn't. Um, mm. I just, yeah, I just like the wordplay. It's it's similar to how I love uh, Mahout having <laughs> multiple O's in the, the last, the last book. <laughs> Unbeast. Yeah. Unbeast. Um, Actually, I think this this book in particular would make a really good sort of metal concept album. Like, yeah, I can really imagine it as a sort of, you know, hour and a half long kind of metal opera i've never i've never told you that my uh my housemate uh was part of a band that did a three album concept crust punk thing about watership down <laughs> oh my gosh wow <laughs> um, i still i've listened to bits of it but i haven't actually listened to the whole thing but i imagine it's quite the quite the thing <laughs> oh, we'll have to um, we'll have to listen to someone. Yeah, and we inevitably do watch it down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, um, uh, I, I mean, you should. I, I'll see if George is up for coming on as a guest because uh, <laughs> yeah, that'll be amazing. He'll, pro- he'll probably have a take or two about it. Although I don't know whether he's. Um... So is, is George the one who works in the comic book shop? 
Uh, no, or book exchange. No, no. no, oh, no. I think I, I think I've met that one of your housemates, possibly. Yeah, I mean that's uh, so my current housemate George. Um, Kier, okay. I lived with a very long time ago, um, but as far as I know, hasn't done any uh, concept albums about children's horror. So, <laughs> <laughs> as far as I know, he has had a lot of bands with a lot of very bad names. <laughs> um, so I wouldn't have put it past him to be fair but um, <laughs> Fax Machine what a terrible name <laughs> and, I believe there was, and I believe that, that I think it might have been the same band decided that actually that was a bad name and so they changed their name to A Pleasant Heat which <laughs> to me sounds a bit like you've wet yourself <laughs> A, anyway, a warm anyway I really hope that Keir doesn't ever listen to this. Um, if I, <laughs> I mean, I've definitely told him to his face that those are some of the worst band names I've ever heard. So, um, yeah. yeah, me and my friend. If, if, you, if you are Keir and want to uh, email the podcast, <laughs> it's your right to reply. <laughs> um. Anyway, so uh, the star wife instructs Triton to watch as they they burn the murdered squirrels on a ritual pyre um, to send them to to the green, as in the green mouse, but not not a mouse, the green the green squirrel. I don't, I don't, I don't know. Um, yeah, it's not clear whether they have like an entirely different um, cosmogony or not. Hmm. Um, I don't even think that's the right word. It just felt good. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, speed to the green, she said, delving into the bag and bringing out a pour full of leaves and herbs. Hmm. Yeah, well, I do own a copy of the Deptford Almanac. Have you have you seen this, Ava? No, it's freaking glorious. It's amazing. Like I'm going to read from it perhaps next time. Bit, but basically, so it's a sort of almanac with you know all the days of the year. And the seasons, and so oh. it gives the precise kind of day and month um, for the various things that happen in the in the three books. Um, but it also has like you know sayings and ruminations, um, and particularly lots of sort of fragmentary snippets of the kind of squirrels' cosmology, oh, um, and you know th- uh, things that the bats say and so forth. So it, it's just like I imagine it's just you know world building basically yeah, that Robin yeah, Jarvis yeah. has done uh, and found a way to kind of collate uh, into this collection. But it's really it's a lovely book. Right? It's got loads of illustrations, um, oh. and it also tells you what happens to certain characters after the events of the third book. So oh. yeah, it's, it's really cool. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we all return to that next time. Hmm. Um, the star wife tells Triton that um, he'll have to do the same funeral ritual for her when she dies, and then demands that he take her to the skirtings as she has business with Audrey. Um, the star wife arrives in the skirtings and tells the mice that Jupiter has returned, but this time as an unbeast an enormously powerful dark spirit. She tells them that their only hope is to consult the ancient wisdom of the bats, and they set a beacon fire on the roof to summon them. After hours of waiting, they think that the bats aren't coming, but Oswald, with his superior eyesight, spots two black shapes on the horizon. 
who's turned out to be Orfeo and Eldritch, who turn up and uh, are quite haughty with the Star Wife and tell her that the bats are already well aware of the Unbeast, and that is why they all flew away uh, to join a great bat council. Uh, Star Wife demands that they fly her to the council, and the bats scoff and insist, in fact, that they're going to bring Oswald, as he was the one who saw them first. So they pick up the Albino Miles and carry him away over the rooftops. Which is where the copy of the book that Ava has, I believe, gets its cover art. Mm. Um, Which is a little bit confusing, right? Because obviously Twit's previously been carried away by the bats over the rooftops. So mm. when I saw that cover, I was like, but that's, that's not what... It's already happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's yeah. not what Twit should look like. <laughs> Yeah, um, my copy is a more modern one that has a uh, has a uh, uh, internet on it. <laughs> yes, um, it has it has a rat holding an ice spear um, in a sort of lurid purple, which I'm not wildly fond of. But yeah, the bats take Oswald to their to their vast meeting and show him off to their bat comrades and he gets a, a severe case of social anxiety. Um understandably. Really. And, and a dribble in the ear. A dribble yeah, in the ear. A dribble in the ear and oh. <laughs> yeah, they refer to him as the pink eyed one whose coming was foreseen long ago. And uh the bats uh, tell Oswald that their future sight has been broken because Jupiter, as the unbeast, is eliminating the future and freezing everything into an eternal dark winter, and they must act before he uses the star glass. Extinction Rebellion plug! <laughs> <laughs> um, I really like the uh, the names of the elders as well. Like uh, as they get greeted, it's "Hail to thee, O there, Lord of the Twilight! Hail Hidred, Keeper of the Hidden Ways! Hail Ingold, Consort of the Lady! And hail Ashmere, Wisest of all Counselors!" Which is definitely throwing shade on the three other elders. The the bats instruct Oswald to crawl into a passageway under the building and retrieve an ancient book of spells and prophecies called the Book of Hrethel to help him, Orfeo and Eldritch grant him the gift of bat sight for seven hours, which means he can basically see anything, right? He can, like, see round corners and through walls and miles and miles away. So, right, so... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there's two things that I noticed whilst reading this that made me think that Robin Jarvis doesn't know how animals work <laughs> one of them is that that sight doesn't see through walls it's just it's just sonar like you know that's a thing totally could have had a bit about sonar here didn't but that's mm. fine that's fine. I'm okay no, with that. You know, it's, it's not it's not edutainment. It's not it? edutainment. No, I I still I liked I liked the bat sight despite despite the inaccuracy. But one thing that only occurred to me halfway through this is that there's a lot of the mice like 
bending over and bending their knees <laughs> and i'm like oh oh god they've had to they've had to crawl around on all fours um and yeah i don't know i, I just started getting a bit freaked out by the idea of mice kneeling <laughs> just wanted to well just wanted to throw that in there and that felt like the best point to say robin jarvis has anthropomorphized these really subtly in a way that I didn't really register until one of them <laughs> had to bend over to get yeah. into a get into a thing. Or he just doesn't understand mouse knees. <laughs> doesn't understand mouse knees. <laughs> just wanted to get that out of my system. Mm. Um, yeah, it doesn't undermine the book at all. It just <laughs> it's just weird. <laughs> Uh, Eldritch leads Oswald down into the crypt and, and kind of casually lets slip that no bats can cross the threshold that Oswald is about to. And Oswald is like, what, what, why? And uh, eventually uh, Eldritch reveals that Hrethel had been the keeper of the great book, uh, but had become seduced by its power and secrets and tried to hoard it all for himself. And it'd been a big fight and eventually the other bats had overcome him, but... Uh, Hrethel had left enchantments on the threshold, which meant that no bats could go into this chamber. Um, so I, d- I, mean, I thought that Oswald was a goner at this point. Oh, yeah. I, I, it was honestly like, I was just going to get blown up by an old bat <laughs> trap of some form. <laughs> yeah, it, it doesn't seem hopeful. Yeah. Um, Oswald reaches the, uh, the ancient cobweb chamber um which holds the wizened and desiccated body of Threffle himself, um, and then has a kind of adventure game sequence of yes. clicking on everything, looking for the hidden book. <laughs> yeah, um, it, it really is very much an adventure game <laughs> sequence, suddenly. Um, <laughs> uh, before eventually he realises that the book must be with his master, with its master, and he touches the, the corpse of Threffle, which crumbles into dust revealing the great book. Uh, but when he opens it, he finds that every page is blank and Frethel has played one last trick on the bats from the distance past. Um, can I jump in with another bat texture? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> as I found out as we're going through. Uh, flushed with excitement, Oswald went over to the preserved bat once more. Hrethel stared malevolently at him, but he was not afraid. He put out a tentative paw and touched one of the folded wings. It was drier than a dead leaf and twice as delicate. It crumbled to dust instantly. Threffle's sneering head had nothing to support it and crashed to the ground in millions of parched pieces. Only the lower half of his body was left, sitting incongruously in the niche, surrounded by flaking particles of itself, and beyond was the great book. Mm. yeah surrounded by flaking particles of itself is a real that's a real texture there yeah no uh, it's good it's good like dead dead bat dust like long dead ancient bat dust everywhere (laughs) i mean to be fair that could also describe like me with a case of bad dandruff (laughs) <laughs> surrounded by particles of yourself yeah i mean we, yeah. we all are aren't we that's um yeah all the time yeah mm. um that's how people can smell me coming 
<laughs> anyway. Um, it's also in this chapter that uh, Twit is referred to as uh, the witch husband, uh, which which I enjoyed. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. you you sound quite sad about that, Eva. No, I think it, no, it's good. It's good. The witch, the witch, <laughs> I, I, the witch husband. I think it's one of the things that foreshadow is foreshadowed in the first book. I think they already call him the the witch husband ah. when they first the bats first meet him and take him off on the first trip over Deptford. Um, oh, right. mm, so Robin Jarvis has planned some. Yeah, of Yeah, no, it's all it's all there. Like the the the, the visions in uh, Madame Akikuyu's, uh marble, uh, and the predictions of the uh, of the bats all uh, all seem to come true in some way or another. Mm. Um, uh, uh, which I think is nice. Um, I mean, it was written as one. As one story. Was it written as one big book? Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. And then someone was like, this is far too long. (laughs) (laughs) We can't can't have 600, like, yeah, 900 pages of mice mice misery. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah. (laughs) It suddenly makes it sound like the Dostoevsky of children. Um, so uh, so we leave Oswald and return to the skirtings where it's getting colder and colder and uh, the stores of food are running lower and lower the star wife is huddled off by herself refusing food and ruminating and Audrey goes up to talk to her and the star wife reveals that although her fur is now grey she is in fact a black squirrel uh, the last of her line and consequently last of the star wives. Um, the star wife declares that this is going to be the night that Jupiter uses the star glass and Arthur climbs the fence to see what he can see. He looks over at the old Deptford power station and sees the ghostly vapour form into the shape of an enormous cat and drift towards Venice. Uh, t- towards Greenwich. Greenwich. <laughs> <Venice. laughs> uh, yeah, no. Uh, oh, sounds very poetical. <laughs> um, the Star Wife tells uh, Triton to hot pour it to the observatory, and Arthur follows him. Uh, the observatory hill is swirling with a an ominous fog, but. But Triton and Arthur manage to climb it and hear Jupiter reciting a spell. So, um, do we have any further observations or comments? I mean, just, just like, you know, I think it makes sense for us to end the podcast here because honestly, as this is happening, I was like looking at the book and being like, how is this not the climax of the book? Like uh-huh. it's <laughs> terrifying. It's enormous, and everything's gone. And there's yeah, it's uh, yeah, yeah. it's uh, it's it's just a bold thing to have halfway through your narrative. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, shall I? Shall I? Shall we finish with me? Do you want me to read it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'll let. 
Adam and Ava read us out of this episode and uh, we'll return next time for the uh, for the, for the darker half of the book honestly it's it's only going to get um it's only going to get more miserable from this this part in so um <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you then the world was lit suddenly by a brilliant flash of lightning thunder rolled and the earth trembled at last the lord of the winter was revealed and the two mice covered their faces in fear. The last traces of mist swept back like a curtain, and there he was, the tyrant of the dark. He stood astride the observatory dome and cackled. The unquiet spirit of Jupiter was immense. His huge, flickering outline reached high into the night sky. It was still that of a cat, but one of nightmare proportions. Ice fell from his transparent fur, and where his gleaming, cruel feet touched, a bitter arctic frost sparked and fizzled, freezing everything it touched. The dome creaked, and a loud crack shivered round it. The ice which flowed over it was as strong as steel. It gleamed bitterly with the deep blue of the eternal void, and icicles larger than stalactites stretched down to the ground. A howling gale tore round Jupiter's huge head. From his mouth, his deadly breath hailed down, full of winter's hatred for the living. His savage teeth were like swords of polished pale metal, forged by cruel satanic fingers for a demon's armoury. His nostrils dripped with tongues of cold flame, and his ears were pressed flat against his spectral skull. But the eyes of the unbeast were the most terrifying of all. They shone out into the darkness, blazing fires of pure malice. They seared into anything their baleful glance fell upon, withering the trees and cracking the ground. This was where the lightning was born. As Jupiter recited his dread words, his eyes dazzled, and a stream of fatal energy burst forth, tearing the sky apart and searing into the blackness of space. His snarls were like thunder, and his anger a blizzard. Hear me, servants of the dark void. His voice hissed upwards. I am the lord of the world. Whilst you cringe, trapped forever in your exile, know that I, Jupiter, have unlocked the gates of death, and trouble once more the unhappy land. I call you to witness now the tumultuide reign. He raised his mighty arms over his head and laughed wildly. Between his cruel claws, something small shimmered with a silver light. The star glass, breathed Thomas fearfully. He and Arthur were very afraid. They could not believe what their eyes were seeing. Jupiter was indeed a creature of nightmares. They felt like two insects brought before a god, but they could not run to save themselves. Everything now seemed hopeless. There was nothing they could do against such a foe. All was lost. In his huge, brutish claws, the star glass of the Starwife looked like a tiny toy. But it was the only way Jupiter could achieve his goal. If the old squirrel had been there, she would have ordered Thomas to destroy it at once. 
but she was far away, and the mice had no idea what was about to take place. They thought that nothing worse could happen. They were never more wrong. Slave of the timeless stars, bellowed Jupiter, obey your new master. And he called out a sentence of harsh, powerful words from the far reaches of the abyss. Remail, son, Hormath, Ice-Hagelseed. He proclaimed defiantly, and he threw back his head with a mad, insane gurgle in his ghostly throat. (laughs) The world seemed to hold its breath. All noise ceased and even the wind dropped as Jupiter completed his spell. The hush became deafening as the seconds stretched into minutes. In his claws, the star glass began to pulse with light. It throbbed and vibrated violently until Jupiter himself shook. The dome split further and bricks tumbled to the frozen ground. But Jupiter laughed at the top of his voice and his screeching cackles were heard all over the trembling world. Down at the base of the statue, Arthur fell to the floor and hid his face. The noise was too much and he thought he was going to faint at any moment. Thomas pressed his nails up into his hair. The woolen hat was pushed off his head and he ground his teeth together in agony as the unbiased's voice pierced his very soul. Arthur squealed and writhed around in his torment. And then with one final groan of despair, he fainted, and for him, the pain came to an end. The midship mouse looked at his young companion, but was unable to help. Shortly, he too would pass out. But he summoned the reserves of strength and raised his head back to the black fiend on top of the observatory. The star glass in Jupiter's iron grasp spilled out its power. The magic of centuries, stored in the depths, poured forth and a high-pitched scream issued from its heart. No. Gloated Jupiter coldly. You must obey me. I know your secret name and have uttered the charm laid down long ago. The celestial pivots are loosened and I command you to hold the heavens once more. The silver light from the star glass suddenly soared upwards. The unbiased yelled in his triumph <laughs> and danced on the dome like a maniac. Thomas felt Jupiter's shrieks of joy boom round his head and he cried out in pain. <laughs> it hurt so much that he started to hallucinate. It seemed as if the very stars swirled and boiled. Thomas shook his head and dragged the paws from his face and stared intently at the heavens. He was not imagining it. The stars were indeed exploding and seething. That was the final horror. The midship mouse felt all his strength trickle away and he collapsed senseless next to Arthur. The night sky quivered. The fierce starlight shook and waned. A host of wailing voices filled the air as one by one the stars were extinguished. Wailing voices, you two. Their light streamed to the earth. 
<laughs> Slivers of brilliant thread shooting out of the black chasm. The slender beams were sucked down to the observatory, down to where Jupiter was waiting, flourishing the star glass, down into its depths where the brilliance was impossible to look on. As fiery rain, they descended, and lamentations issued from all creation. Oh, wow. The constellations were quenched, snuffed out by the tremendous powers of both Jupiter and the age-old star glass, and all who witnessed it fell to their knees and prayed. The endless eternal void came flooding in, and the world was plunged into darkness. Not one single star was left in the pitch-black sky. All their precious, angry light was trapped in the glass, and Jupiter was its master. Yeah. <laughs>